Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Story. I'm here today with Sile Magos of MetaView. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Eric. Great to be here. So guys, by way of introduction, why don't you describe what is MetaView and what inspired you to start it? Absolutely. So um, MetaView, at MetaView, we're reimagining how exceptional organizations build their teams. Uh, we do this by applying speech to text to job interviews. The aim is to turn them into troves of data. Um, so we started this off the back of our experiences. Um, I was at Uber before starting the company. Sharia um, was at Palantir. Core observation we had was, you know, these companies hyperscaling, how are we contributing to building exceptional teams? Well, it's actually in these interviews. Um, and really what our takeaway was, it's interviews where a, an organization is determining their quality as they scale. It's also the point at which they have the least data about that, literally complete black holes uh, of data. It's been that way for the longest time. Doesn't have to be that way anymore. Uh, speech to text technology is now now pretty good, and you can really make sense of these conversations. And so, so that's what we're doing. Really, when you think about it, organizations phenomenal vehicles for making change in the world. They are the way that we as human beings make change. The way they build teams is through these these conversations, these highly lossy conversations. There's a whole lot of wastage. There's a lot of breakage. There's a whole lot of guesswork that goes into building these teams and populating these teams, even though they are the way we make change, and uh, that's just not gonna not gonna sustain. So, Sherry and I were friends before uh, starting the company. We worked together at a, a startup in a fintech startup in London, um, post Series A. Um, I was head of product. He was uh, on the on the engineering team. We sort of went our separate ways. I went on to Uber. He went on to Palantir. We stayed in touch. Always thought that maybe we'll do something together. We always sort of got on and threw around a lot of ideas and sort of enjoyed jam sessions. Um, what we sort of realized was there's this, a bit of a difference between the scaling challenges that Uber and Palantir had. Uber was very much a sort of growth no matter what um, mentality. So there was a whole lot of effort put in to making sure that when we grew, we got as awesome as people as was possible, but we were going to grow. We were going to get a butt in a seat no matter what, because it had to happen because we were, we were in a race and we were, it was a, it was a, it was a land grab. Um, and this was in, this was quite different to, to what was experienced at Palantir, which really, you know, their growth is almost limited by the raise of money. Obviously, Shari can speak to it um, more in, in a moment, but essentially there was real joy almost in saying no to people if they weren't the right fit. And there was, so we saw this sort of tension between two awesome companies really trying to scale. And actually there's this fundamentally different way that they, that they build their teams, but it still came down to the fact that interviews uh, were where they were making their decision. So Sharia was always sort of academically on point with the idea that actually who you hire is the company you build. And it's incredibly important. I always thought it was true as well. But I sort of never really felt it until I saw it at Uber. Um, and the real penny drop moment for me um, was we uh, hit a bit of a wartime scenario um, uh, on the driver side. So I was a product manager on uh, driver payments. So a big part of what led to driver satisfaction, obviously, was how they got paid, how much they get paid, all these things. This was what my team looked after. There was a period, you may remember, I think 2017, um, where there was a lot of uh, aggravation. Drivers weren't happy. And so drivers really became the main focus of Uber as a company. What this led to was a 
sort of threw out the window our existing sort of well-trodden OKR process that we managed ourselves by. And we switched to this much more top-down, big rock style of management. What this meant was there was a spreadsheet centrally managed by the most senior people in the company. On that spreadsheet was a list of projects that Uber was doing. They were the big rocks ordained but you know from up top really and each of those big rocks had someone's name beside it as an owner so i was one of these big rock owners i was on driver engagement on payments and what i sort of the penny drop for me was i was looking around through the spreadsheet and i saw well really the thing that in my mind it sort of crystallized me the thing that in my mind that is determining which of these projects is going to be a success is the name of the person who's associated with it and so that for me was this moment when i realized okay it really is i sort of get what everyone says now when they say Hiring is so vital, it's going to determine really your success, your ability to, to grab opportunities as an organization once I saw it really just in black and white on, on that format. So the next step for me was then you realize, well, how are these people getting in the organization? Well, they're coming through via interviews. When I'm sitting in interviews, I'm seeing vastly different styles of interviews. I'm seeing vastly different judgments from interviewers. It's almost like the outcome of that process that determines who gets on the boat is, is almost arbitrary. And yeah, so when we started to really think about this and peel the lid on, well, what data could you get, could you get out of interviews to stop that being the case? We started to get really excited about the, the, the possibilities of um, really building this interview intelligence platform uh, for, for Enterprise. Yeah, and when we saw it, and, and Village is lucky to be an investor, it, it just seemed like a, a no-brainer product value prop. Um, but you also talked about, you know, what other things you could use the interview data for and, and what, what could this... Could, could this become? Why don't you talk uh, more about that? So yeah, really when we started, um, and we can talk a little bit more in a second about, I think when you get into um, selling into uh, recruitment teams, talent teams, people teams, there's obviously lots of constituents from the, the buyer to the true leadership to the interviewers themselves. The thing that really brought us to it was taking like a product approach to interviewing, which is almost why don't I have my version of Google Analytics? If I'm responsible for the interview process in this company, where in Uber's case, hundreds of thousands of people hours every year are getting dedicated to interviews, why don't I have a dashboard that, that explain, you know, tells me how, how, how well we're doing? So that's really the, the insights we, um, you know, when we think about cool things to do with interview data, it's things like um, identifying your most consistent, most rigorous interviewers and making sure they're passing on their learnings to other members of the team. Identifying if you interview one demographic systematically, demographic candidate systematically different to how you interview another. So an obvious example would be, do you interview female candidates different to how you interview male candidates in, in the organization as a whole? It turns out from our data that most companies do, there's a 12% uh, difference in speaking time between female and male candidates. So female candidates speak 12% less than male candidates typically during interviews. Um, and also face two more questions uh, per interview on average. Other things, you know, identifying traits of an interview that result in a candidate being more likely to, res- to, to accept an offer. Identifying traits of an interview that result in uh, hiring candidates that go on to be top performers so you can go and pattern match that in the future. There's, there's just this massive sort of richness of, of data that can be, uh, of insight, I should say, actually, that can be taken out of these interviews once you have uh, something in the room that can scalably capture uh, these things. And I think the, like, speaking of it a bit more more abstractly, this is something that, you know, we, Sal and I, were both were in product and engineering teams um, all of our lives. It's something that in, in that in that world, like observability and telemetry into the health of your product is j- just so standard and given right now that, yes, we still make 
human judgments based on what we should do, what we should focus on, what we should not focus on, focus on, or how a part of our product is performing. But all that human judgment, there is so much data um, that informs it. Um, and that was that was re- that was really the thing that with MetaView we were trying to and are still trying to address, which is the, the most important decisions in an organization, which are the hiring decisions, the most outcome defining parts of the decisions, which are the interviews, the conversations. There is no observability into it. So when I was at Panther responsible for making hiring decisions, and I was told there are certain groups of candidates that were really struggling to close. Well, actually, my first question was, what, what is the most common questions they're asking? What are they interested in? And we just didn't have an answer to that. Or we had anecdotal answer from different folks. And I, w- I would go talk to different interviewers, be like, what do you think these folks are um, interested in? What are they not interested in, et cetera? But getting to a point today where with MetaView, you can say of all the candidates that reject an offer that we give them, bucket the questions that they're asking based on theme and show me what they're interested in. And then you can like further slice that as well by other data that you have to really have that telemetry and like logging into your interviewing infrastructure the same way that you would have into your software infrastructure. Right? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I was fascinated by your, your stat on, uh, you know, 12% less speaking time on, on average for, for females and, and two more questions. What, what are other insights that you've learned just from tracking so, so many interviews whether you know examples of, of things that lead to a candidate more likely to accept an offer or lead to some you know someone more likely to be a, a high performer yeah conversations are so rich with data that as you can imagine we're learning new things all the time a couple of that have been, that have been really uh, impactful for customers um, so some of the things that uh, MetaView captures, one would be uh, how many questions are asked during an interview and how many um, how many follow-ups to those questions uh, did you have. Recruiting is a, is, is a bit of a machine, really. You have a certain number of people that go in the top and a certain number that come out the bottom. What people in recruitment often want to know is uh, how do I maximize the efficiency of that funnel? How do I make sure it's as, essentially as wide as possible all the way down? What we've seen is that in a recruiter screen, if you cover fewer than five topics during an interview, it's 20% more likely that candidate will get rejected at the next stage, i.e. you're not calibrated and therefore you're putting weak candidates through, uh, which is resulting in wastage in the system because someone's interviewing them at the next stage and they're highly likely not to be strong enough. Um, Similarly, for that hiring manager stage going through to onsite, which is the typical process that many of our our customers have, it's a a similar story where there's a certain point at which you're not being rigorous enough, meaning you're more likely to put weak candidates through and waste everyone's time. And each of those, each that sort of change sounds quite tactical. But when you think about what it takes to gather a team, an onsite team, you know that's usually maybe six to ten people who are involved in this in this hire. The chances are the next candidate then can only maybe you can only maybe see them next week, and by that point maybe they've interviewed at Facebook instead, and you know you've lost them. Um, so getting that that the quality of candidate, the, the calibration on quality of candidate throughout the funnel is something that this this data is really really useful for. So yeah, that's that's one that we've uh, we've seen uh, is pretty important. Lots of our customers are very um, keen to ensure a consistent process. Um, so we have a way that we measure consistency for our for our for organizations and essentially score interviews based on um, their variance from one in, uh, an interview based on their variance from one interview to the next, uh, which is also pretty revealing of uh, of quality of interview as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Speed, consistency, and and customization. I want to try to segue a little bit into. Uh, just sort of the uh, voice uh, uh, enterprise space more broadly. You know, we've seen a number of companies in sale, in in sort of sales and enablement, um, in in sort of different 
you know, uh, sort of sort of subsectors or, or positions. What have we learned in the last few years of sort of you know performance in this voice enterprise space, and and how are you, how how are you approaching it, or how do you sort of think about it? Yeah. So obviously we're we're pumped about voice, right? Uh, we we've built a company in this space. Uh, we think there's a real uh, willingness and uh, you, you know and desire really to start to use this data that we're all transferring to each other um, in a more systematic way. Fundamentally, we see really conversations or voice um, as the next um, frontier. And when we sort of analyze it, there are sort of two two strands to it, and we actually play in both. So one is. Um, voice as an interface, which, you know, obviously, you know, that's in the consumer world as well, well right? Like uh, Google Home or uh, Alexa or whatever it might be. Uh, these are essentially ways that company, you know, these products are trying to change our behavior in a way that, that they believe is more convenient for us to use. So they're trying to get you to say things instead of tap things or type things or click things. Um, so obviously in our case, we capture interviews. So what we're uh, enabling is instead of sort of rigorously taking notes during an interview, that's handled for you. So there's just a convenience play there, um, not for necessarily changing behavior. We're just trying to get you to stop your behavior of taking such rigorous notes and instead really focus on that interview. So there's there's one way that sort of voice is a thing, right? It's an interface and it's in some, in, in some cases, it's the best interface, the most convenient interface for a certain um, certain task. The second part is voice as a data source. Um, so obviously, conversations are happening all around us all the time. Um, and of course, they are getting stored in some way. They're getting stored in, you know, in our individual brains as memories. Uh, sometimes we manage to write some of it down if we sort of want to make sure we remember something. But that's like a really lossy process, as you can imagine. You have no ability, not only are you forgetting things, you also have no ability to actually identify trends over time and um, predict issues and whatnot. Um, so this aspect of voice in enterprise where you're capturing the data that is transferred via voice is not really about changing behavior. It's much more about giving people much better tools and much better recall on, on, on knowledge so that they can improve their decision decisions and whatnot. What we sort of realize is there are, just, there are these two elements to it, of course, convenience and data tracking, data capture. Um, and actually they're both key because there are many, in any enterprise, there are many constituents. There are the people who need to use a tool. So if you take, even if you take like a CRM tool, like take Salesforce or, or, or something like this, um, obviously it has awesome reporting functionality. If you're a senior sales leader, you're probably only ever looking at the uh, reporting and using it to make forecasts and predictions and whatnot. But that's never why salespeople use it. Salespeople use it because it uh, helps them close more deals. And that's what they are really incentivized to care about. And so when you build a CRM, you need to care about both of those constituents. And it's very much the same with voice. Um, you build convenience features that make it easier, make your life easier um, as you know, by using voice as an interface. Um, but then you also need, obviously, um, satisfy the customer, the buyer's needs by enabling to access to this very rich data that enables them to develop better strategies, make better decisions, and make more informed um, predictions, these sorts of things. So yeah, with them, um, uh, I think that's the same for other companies, other emergent um, conversation analytics companies. You mentioned uh, Chorus or Gong, same thing for them. There's utility for the, for the salesperson and utility for the, for the buyer. And the good thing is these aren't, these aren't like in conflict. These are two things you need to do. They're not in conflict. They both really lead to the same thing. It's just important to sort of consider both of those constituents when you're you're building out um, a business in this space. How, how would you approach it if you were a venture capitalist or for or for VCs who ask you for advice for how to approach you know different verticals, you know, uh, sort of specific companies in, in this space? Yeah, really good question. So 
obviously the, the best, almost the place that we can speak from is from our experiences. Uh, we've obviously taken like a, a very focused approach where it's a particular type of conversation that we're focused on um, building an intelligence platform for. Gong, Chorus, that's the same thing. They're focused on a very specific type of com- conversation. There are other companies out there to take a more general approach. What we see and the reason we've taken this very deliberate uh, approach or very focused approach on a single type of conversation is if you really want to make sense of those conversations and turn the data that you gather into an asset that is useful for you as a company and then also sort of repeatedly useful for your customers, importantly, as well, and there's, um, you know, they benefit from the fact um, you're capturing this data, then the focus is really useful. And that's because turning these conversations into, into data, you need a data pipeline for that. And that means you need to build tooling to turn these conversations into data. And if you try and solve for every type of conversation at once, uh, you're actually you're losing fidelity of of insight. Um, so I guess I mean all I can talk, I'm obviously you know preaching what we're doing. I guess that's what I tell an investor to do is you should invest in MetaView maybe. But basically, the focus on the um, focusing on a particular type of conversation um, for which there's an expected structure for us seems to be the right place to start. Assuming, because we assume and we believe that it's also important to build utility and build a product people want from the get-go. We can't, we're not expecting our customers to wait around for this to turn into um, this incredible piece of technology that predicts you should hire tomorrow, right? That's not, that's not what's going to happen. It's going to be a tool that is useful from the get-go. And to do that, you need to be able to make sense of these, um, these conversations. Um, and that's very hard if you don't have a, a particular focus. Yeah, I, any other sort of vectors that you sort of asking that question, sort of um, any other dimensions you're interested in that question via Eric? Well, maybe just places. Uh, yeah, I mean, one at a high level, like I wonder if, if there are consumer uh, use case or more just like the broad, broader level question of like, is everything going to be recorded in the future and analyzed and, uh, you know, parsed? Um, how, how do you think about that? Yeah. There's, I think there's like the the really long term view, um, and then there's like the the let's call it the mid term, the sort of the five to ten year view. I think five to ten years, I don't necessarily think there's going to be all types of conversations. I think there's there's going to be that uh, in in the business situation. I'll, I'll focus on the enterprise, the business, um, the B two B scenario. I think there's going to be that the understanding that uh, there's a particular like palpable business goal that recording this conversation achieves, and it's you know directly and purposefully convenient for the people who use it i think in the very long run yeah the idea that um people will rely less on their sort of their memory literally their own personal memory for recall um and that they therefore will use um uh recordings to to improve their recall i think completely will take hold and i think the 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 thing that needs to happen of course is is partly a technological advancement but also like i guess an increased maturity or increased sophistication around how we understand privacy i think a lot of people think with the first thing when they think when they think about getting recorded is they think about is they think about privacy basically they think um you know this someone's going to use this against me in some way and so when we can actually move that control or or that feeling of control or actually move the ownership of that data to uh, and and make sure they understand they own the data to the people involved then you sort of start to decay that that sort of view starts to decay and then i think you'll see a lot of applications off the back of that because recording becomes normalized so we'll finally see you know quantify who in meetings waste time who's productive uh, yeah yeah I, I i can imagine so yeah talk about uh ai uh, and how you think about it as it relates to uh building up MetaView. 
Sure. Yeah, we, we, we sort of have a, like, again, as with everything, it's sort of nuanced, right? There's a bit of a mix on it. So in one way, um, it's completely vital. Like, obviously, MetaView would not exist without uh, recent developments in, in AI, specifically in NLP, obviously. Um, but in another way, um, it's it's sort of irrelevant. As I, said, as I mentioned, it's, it's vital in that AI has made, continues to make speech-to-text pretty awesome. And there was a couple of, um, you know, real step changes in the last few years that have made, that's why you start to see Gong Core is doing so well and other companies emerging. Um, so in that sense, we obviously leverage this sort of sea change in this technology and we're massively benefiting from that, from that tailwind. But in the second, on the second case, it's sort of, uh, it's irrelevant because customers don't actually care. Once you, once you've got that sort of basic level of, um, um, uh, conversational understanding down, customers don't really care, um, about, how you're using AI on top of that, what they care about, of course, you know, it's a bit of a trope really, but what they care about is their problems. Um, so um, for us, what that means is we have a bit of a cold start, right? There is no existing massive corpus of interview data or interview recordings that we could access and then uh, start to analyze and, and apply models to and, and make predictions off the back of. We have to actually generate that corpus of data and the way that you generate that corpus of data is not by promising some, again, some predictions that we can make using AI in future. It's by actually giving value uh, in the here and now. So the, the, what we focus on day to day is much more uh, what are the valuable things using our data annotation pipeline and um, using our, you know, using our understanding of customers and what they want. Um, what can we do um, that will actually give them value uh, today, um, which is, is not really leveraging AI. But what we do know is we'll be able to, once you have this corpus of data, of course, you get an advantage in the use of AI to make quicker predictions, cheaper predictions, um, and, and all these sorts of things. Um, so it's really about the underlying data asset, which um, yeah. which we focus on. And, and because you're sitting on, on all that data, you, you, you must just have so much, much insights around how to run great interviews. Uh, of course, a lot of it is custom, but but things that do generalize and just how to build an interviewing you know organization in, in general. What are some insights you can share that, uh, you know, uh, you know, founders, of course, when they start, they're doing a lot of the uh, interviewing themselves, but then they, they bring on other people. Like, wh- what are some lessons you've picked up that you wanted to depart uh, to, to founders listening, uh, impart to founders who are listening in? Um, yeah, I mean, it massively varies per stage, as you can imagine. Obviously, we we tend to focus more on companies in the sort of anywhere between 200 and 3000 people still growing really fast, let's say 50% headcount year on year. But of course, a lot of the, a lot of folks, and obviously we're still in the boat of being very founder-led in our our own hiring, for example. So we sort of see both sides. We see what founder-led hiring looks like and we try and do an awesome job of that. And we also see what somewhat scaled hiring is at these, at these you know, larger organizations. Um, obviously, when you start out, you've got a, a great hammer that you can use, a great tool that you can use for calibration, which is as a founder or as a founding team, make sure that you are involved in every interview loop. Um, now you might make bad decisions, but at least the decisions are going to be the decisions you would have made when you're, when you're a larger company, obviously, once you get sort of above a hundred people or so, then you lose that ability to really be a meaningful part of an, an interview loop. And that's when you start to get really anxious about, well, hang on, there's, you know, 60 people in this, in my company who have been here for less than a year, but they're deciding who the next hundred people to join the, the company are. And I hardly know these people. And I wasn't sure when I made that decision to hire them anyway, and now they're building out their own team. And that's like a really anxiety inducing situation to be in because, you know, any founder has like really, you know, 
really try to um, nurture and cultivate a culture and to see it sort of slip away so easily and exponentially almost slip away um, is, is really hard to see. So yeah, we, we focus more on, on, on those problems um, with, with our products. Yeah, so in terms of actual um, best uh, best practices, we see. I mean, there are a few few basics that uh, all the top companies will, will push. One is structured interviews. So um, structured interviews basically means for a given candidate at a given stage, ask the same can ask each candidate the same thing. Super simple. Uh, it's a really it's a, it's an excellent way to obviously achieve some form of consistency. But also, what you will realize as a as a hiring manager or a person involved in the hiring decision is you're much better able to calibrate on what great looks like very very simple way to do that and you actually start to get an idea of of, of, of again what, what good looks like other things so that- just at that point for a second mm. what if you're asking the same questions every time why even have multiple interviews like what's what's the um what what leverage do you get from yeah from yeah uh, sorry yeah just so just to be clear what i mean is if i'm responsible for a certain stage of interview and i'm going to have five candidates come past me i'm going to ask the same questions to each of those five candidates but you're completely right part of the structure of the structured interview process will include the next person in line the person who's doing interview number two make sure they ask a different set of questions to me and you want to focus on them uh, they want to focus on proving or disproving certain um, competencies that the candidate might have and i will focus on proving or disproving these and when you come out of those interviews you don't necessarily want to come out with a higher or no higher decision you're just coming out with given i was focused on this set of competencies would i recommend we uh are they strong or are they weak on these competencies and then of course the hiring manager can make the overall decision based on that synthesis so yeah structure interviews for for your stage ask the same questions but the candidate should face different questions um anyone candidate should face different questions at each of the stages um Another really good process um, um, to get in to get fired up is shadowing, uh, something that we try and enable virtually. Uh, we do enable virtually on MetaView. So shadowing, um, it's really it is quite time intensive if you're not using a tool like MetaView. It basically means if you're a trainee, say you're new to the comp, say you're new to to you're new to the comp, the organization. We're not necessarily going to throw you in and have you conducting interviews right away because, you know, if we put you in front of a really great candidate and you don't spot it because you're not calibrated or you give them poor experience and we miss them, that's that's too that's too costly. So what we're going to do is you're going to shadow a seasoned interviewer um, and you might what they typically do at top companies is they'll have you will shadow a seasoned interviewer two or three interviews. Um, which, you know, might take you know two or three weeks, maybe depending on when they're interviewing. Again, that's one cool thing about having an interview intelligence platform is of course you can actually just do that shadowing asynchronously and do it all in an afternoon. And then you're sort of ready to go to step two. Step two is when you conduct an interview as the sort of the trainee interviewer and a more experienced interviewer shadows you. So they sit, sit in, in the interview with you it means they can interject if they need to. It also means that when they get, when you give your synthesis on a candidate, your judgment on a candidate, they can sort of almost nudge you on it and, you know, make sure you're calibrated in the right way. So shadowing programs are great. Um, they are, uh, they are expensive in a, in a few ways in terms of your seasoned interviewers are usually some of your most experienced people as well, which means they're spending twice as much of their time interviewing as they would otherwise, which is why we've made it part of MetaView's platform as well. Um, but they are a really effective way to, to calibrate people, um, that's for sure. A couple of other things that are, I think, slightly more uh, almost expert level. One is when you make the hire or when you're ex- essentially getting ready to extend the offer, Obviously, with all these things, you want to get better and better over time um, and certainly not decay over time in terms of the quality of decision that you're making. So a really good practice to get into is to essentially write up your hiring thesis for each individual you're involved in. 
And the best way to structure that is to write up what a success path for that person looks like, i.e. when they join the company, if, if what does is, what is great look like and what's going to enable them to do it, but then also write up a failure path and try and almost predict. If, this, if, we, if I was to tell you that in six months' time, a year's time, two years' time, this hire had been a bad hire, what would you think were the reasons why that would be? And I almost do that pre-mortem at that stage. It's not designed necessarily to change your decision in that moment. What it's designed to do is to help you build up that muscle of realizing um, what to look for in candidates um, and give you something to, to refer back to if and when it does turn out that they were a bad hire. So that's a really, really good practice that um, we do at MetaView and a, a lot of top companies do um, too. Um, and then I think there's just like a, there's just various techniques around being very deliberate about interviewing. Some we've already mentioned actually have specific questions you're going to ask and actually know exactly what competencies you're going to focus on. That's like, that's like basics. You, that's, that's, that's a must. Um, I think as you get more and more experience as an interviewer, there's almost a few different philosophies that you can adopt uh, as an interviewer. Um, and I think it depends on um, what we see is this tends to vary by certainly by company, but sometimes by department. So some companies, some departments take what would be called a hire first mentality. This essentially means that uh, they're going in um, knowing what this person needs to have to be hired. Um, and they are trying to just tick off those things. So they're focusing on the things that they do hire for and trying to give the candidate every opportunity to show that they have these things. It's sort of like a, a, a very positive approach to it. Can I prove that this person does meet the spec, does meet my needs? Another approach is to go fire first mentality, which is almost to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to try as hard as I can to prove that this person um, doesn't have the things uh, that I want to see. And it's, a, it's, it, 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 it's it, there's no right or wrong. It's just a different way to, to hire. And it, it depends on uh, what your, your goals are as a team. For example, if you're building out a, um, what we might see is someone is going through a hiring spike on uh, customer support and they need to hire, you know, get 20 people in um, in the next uh, three months or something like this, then it might make a higher first approach makes more sense. Um, but in other certain other situations, this fire, fire first um, approach makes more sense. So yeah, those are some of the things that we see uh, top companies do. And, you know, we're big, we're big fans of, and we do sort of with our customers, we have obviously pretty good relationships with, 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 with all of them. So we sort of talk on these, some of these things, and even though they're not directly in our, in our product, they're sort of some of the things that we, we uh, mentioned folks should give a go. Yeah. Can you give more examples of, of what hiring VCs look like? I mean, really it is, as I described, which is uh, you would again, almost do that. What we, what you'd call a pre-mortem, which is in a scenario where this person, I'm trying to think of a, a literal example um, so things that you might mention in 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 one of these, uh, in for example, uh, uh, a failure path, you might have picked up during an interview that uh, the candidate ticked a lot of boxes, but for whatever they didn't seem to show much initiative, didn't show much initiative in their in their in their past work. Um, and uh, so your failure path for them might be that when given ownership of a project, um, they didn't uh, step up to the plate and really, you know, 10x on, on that project. And that, what, would, what, would, what are the things that you would do as a manager in that situation to reduce the chance of that happening? Well, you probably express to them really clearly that uh, this is something that they really have to own. Um, and there's going to be no, no backstop if this doesn't uh, work out. You'd have to make it really clear to them what the tools are at their disposal to make sure that they're um, going to nail this, this, this project. You have to make sure or uh, you might do regular check-ins with them um, because their task level maturity on this is relatively low. So you'd almost, you know, once they're hired, they're on the team and you want to do everything possible to make sure that even though you've picked that up as a weakness, you're going to manage that situation accordingly and have a plan around it. 
Um, so that would be an example of um, a failure path would be, well, they were put on, despite the fact we noticed they didn't actually have great ownership mentality, um, we put them to own a project uh, and their manager didn't have regular check-ins with them and they weren't clear uh, what the actual goals of the, the project were from the start or something. That's a very extreme case, but that would be, uh, that would be what we mean by that. Awesome. Um, these have been some, some, some really great insights for, for people listening in who are either founders or they want their companies to, to, to use MetaView um, because they're just compelled by, by the value prop. What, uh, what more info can you share or, or you know, where can people learn more uh, sort of in, in wrapping here and, and anything, uh, feel free to plug anything upcoming. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely ch- check out our website, um, uh, metaview.ai. Fundamentally, we're about using uh, conversation analytics to help you up-level your interviewers and make better hiring decisions. As I think I've made clear, we're really, really passionate about turning these conversations into troves of data. And we, we help you use that data for fundamentally for three things. Um, one is you've got perfect, as an interviewer, you've got perfect recall of the conversation. You can then collaborate on that, essentially this transcript, just like you do on Notion or on Google Docs, at mention, you know, your hiring manager say, hey, what do you think of this? It's just a much more collaborative way to hire. Secondly, we use that data to really empower talent leaders. So if you're responsible, if you're a talent leader, you're responsible for, you know, tens of thousands um, or tens of thousands of interview hours every year, really knowing who your best interviewers are, uh, who's least consistent and might be sort of uh, more biased than others, what departments are having great hiring outcomes and how is this reflected in their interview style? And can we we transfer that to other members of the team? Then we sort of we give you that data. And then lastly, we have um this, uh, this emergent part of the business, which is around actually helping interviewers improve. So we literally give interviewers very tactical feedback via the platform of what they can do differently um, to interview better. Um, and we see yeah amazing results with that. So yeah, check out metaview.ai. Um, always game to, to, to jump on a call and do a demo and get feedback. So yeah, check it out. Awesome. We're, 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 we're grateful to be, uh, to, to be supporters. You guys are real uh, craftsmen and, and really understand, uh, understand how, how to interview and, and, and help your customers uh, do so. So this has been a really insightful interview. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Cheers, Eric. Thanks so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.